which first off is rough for me. You know, like I love to go back and forth, but man. (laughs) (laughs) Every now and then you'll listen. (laughs) Yeah. Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr. And I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. Hey, what's going on, family? It's another great episode of Humanize. Um, we're here with the phenomenal social activist slash poet slash visionary slash all around great human, Kyle. We're going to have more of that amazing introduction. I just want to let you guys know that, again, another disclaimer about Humanize is please make sure you have a relationship with all the individuals that you're having conversations with so that the work can come organically and it can um, happen in a way that can be beneficial to both parties and the one person is not taking the emotional load. I just wanted to, I just felt the need to start off with that warning right there. Not warning, but just a statement. So Emily, go ahead. Let's take it away. (laughs) Awesome. So welcome, Kyle. Thank you for joining us today. Today, we are so honored to have Kyle Tran Myrie, also known as Guante. So you may have heard of his work before. He was a member of two National Poetry Slam championship teams. He is a poet, educator, and activist based in Minneapolis. And his work, which drew us to him, is really exploring the relationship between identity, power, and resistance. So you have performed everywhere between the United Nations and conferences and music festivals like Soundset. I mean, just incredible. And you're drawing in, I'm sure, a ton of life experience that we want to hear about, as well as um, master's studies focusing on spoken word and critical pedagogy and social justice education. So welcome. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, So as we were corresponding before the show, what we'd really love to focus on today is this idea of narrative strategy. And what I'd love to open up with is just hearing about your path and where you came from, where you grew up from, your influences that led you to this moment of including this line in a poem that has since become quite famous, and uh, which is, white supremacy is not the shark, it's the water. So I'd love to hear about your path. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, on, on some level, people who do this kind of work, whether that's like racial justice work or like facilitation work, like that's a really basic concept, right? It's a basic, if I if I may say, like critical race theory concept. But I think part of, of the arts approach is how do you take those basic concepts and maybe wrap them up in a different way or present them from a different angle to hopefully, ideally, like draw new people into the conversation who maybe wouldn't be there otherwise. And I guess to relate that then to my like personal story, on one level, I think sometimes we, and I say we in a very, very broad sense, like people often look for those like kind of lightning strike eureka moments where like suddenly growing up, you realize that you need to do this thing. And I don't, I don't honestly know if, if I had that. I'm identified as mixed race, but I grew up in a pretty white place. And like by walking down the street identity, people usually see me as white. That's why I write a lot about whiteness. But um, this kind of stuff wasn't so much on my mind when I was in middle school and high school and stuff. But I think the, the thing that changed for me was when I was around 17, 18, 19, I got into poetry and I got into hip hop and I got into activism kind of all at the same time. And all of it w- wasn't because of anything that necessarily changed in my own head in terms of my values or my principles. It was all just through relationships. It was having like random friends who, you know, I'd play basketball with and then they would drag me with them to a meeting or we would hang out together and listen to music and then they drag me with them to the open mic. And I think by finding that community, um, you kind of just, I say you, but I think I kind of fell into a lot of this stuff. It wasn't that I ever, when I was, you know, in high school, was like, I want to be a poet. Like, I'm the most introverted, like, quiet, anxious person, you know? And and yet my job today is to go around and 
perform in front of people and like facilitate these hard conversations up in front of people. And, and all again, all of that just happened very organically and like emergently to use that phrase, like just through relationships. And I always point to that, you know, for young people I work with who are trying to get into activism or get into spoken word or get into music and or like all those things together, that it isn't just about our talent or our personal ambition or drive as individuals, but it is about the communities that we build um, around us and that we find ourselves in. You mentioned like drawing people in. What have you learned about drawing people in to hard conversation? (laughs) So I think, you know, on one level, there isn't a, a magical key to it. I try to be very careful to say that like art and storytelling and poetry is not always going to work. It's not always going to be the thing that like clicks with your racist uncle or whatever. But I do think it's a tool, like a tool in our in our larger toolbox of relationship building and advocacy and like outreach work. And so for me, like in terms of drawing people in, what I I think there are a couple things that I would say that I try to do. And again, I'm trying to be very careful and be very humble. And like, these are things that are <laughs> attempts. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't. You, you, no. There's also no yeah, silver bullet exactly. in this, in this so, world. It's funny. So uh, let me share a different example. When I work with like a, a group of young people on just, just poetry stuff, we'll often like listen to a poem or read a poem or watch a poem. And then we have a conversation about it. And that conversation is often broken up into pieces. There's, we can talk just about the delivery, the performance. We can talk just about the formal elements, the imagery, the writing, all that. We can talk just about the content. What is it trying to say? And we can talk about the context, like what is the work of the poem? Who is its audience? And like by breaking up the, the conversation into those pieces, it often allows participants to just be a little more free, to be able to not put so much pressure on themselves to like say the most brilliant thing. It's just like little bits and pieces. And I think that same strategy applies to the work that I do more broadly. And that part of it is about form, right? I do think that storytelling and metaphor and imagery is often a way to bring people into conversations. That's just different than standing up on a stage and being like, hey, everyone, don't be racist. It's bad, right? <laughs> And, you know, sometimes you do have to say that. Sometimes that's the thing to do. But I think, um, again, that's a tool in my toolbox is imagery, form, metaphor, that kind of stuff. And then I think there's also a, like, a context and delivery element of that in that I think a lot about the idea that oftentimes when someone comes to a, I do a lot of work in, like, colleges, right? Like, with undergrads or with fraternities or athletic departments or whatever. And a lot of times when they bring someone in to speak, it's very like motivational speakers, like, hey, everyone, listen to me. And I, I try to really resist that. And, you know, it's not just like a false humility thing either. I think it's, I think that's a relationship building tool. The idea that, look, I'm not here to give you answers. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here, like, I'm, a, I'm an artist. I don't, I don't have to know anything or have any answers. What I do is tell stories and I share perspectives and, and like, experiences that I've had in the hopes that you then as a participant can like draw pieces from that that are useful to you. I think of it as, as a diffusion of authority um, is a, a tool to bring people in. You know, generally people don't want to don't want to be I don't want to say preached at because I think sometimes people do want to be preached at. But I think um, that idea of the, the expert or the authority who's going to tell you what to think, I try to resist that as much as possible. And being an artist, like that's kind of part of the role, right? You don't have to be that authority. Yeah, that resonates with me in terms of the work that I have done. I feel like I've gone on my own journey of like, so I've been in, in, you know, doing intercultural work for maybe 20 years and focus on anti-racism more in the last five or 10 years. And I think I've gone on my own arc of like feeling like I was the expert when I like knew things to actually like the best I can do is just tell you my experience and see if something resonates. So I, I definitely resonate with that idea of diffusing authority, especially in this space. Like it's appropriate, right? If you're learning physics or something, like something that's like, you know, you can put it into an equation. But Well, and I mean, not to be too on the nose for what the podcast is about, but all that stuff about authority and power is all racialized and it's gendered and like, so I think for someone like me, who is kind of a big, loud, cisgendered dude, uh, and you know more or less of a white guy, like I think it's extra important to like try to step away from that sometimes very like 
tempting draw to stand up in front of people and be like, hey, everyone, listen to me and how smart I am. But again, trying to, it goes back to the idea of, you know, as you all probably know, like teaching versus facilitating, where like you're not there to teach, you're there to facilitate an experience and a conversation. I think that's a really useful framing. Wow. Man, like I'm sitting here listening, which first off is rough for me. You know, like I love to go back and forth, but <laughs> man. I, <laughs> Every now and then you'll listen. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, man, you feel like a kindred spirit because when you go like myself, it's a little bit backstory uh, from Atlanta and um, I ended up becoming a, a doctor, you know, and with that, people assume that, oh, you your life is set. So when I took a hard turn and said, you know, oh, I don't want to do that. I want to be an activist. Why would you do that? Like family is telling me, oh, you're the first one to go to college. Why would you just abandon that and just struggle, you know? And even when I was in medical school and in the hospital and seeing patients, relationship building was such a huge thing for me. Like diagnosing, I, I'm in the room. I already know what it is. It's like sitting down and getting to know the person. So to hear you say that, relationship building is probably one of the most powerful tools resonates with me more than you possibly could know. And the work that we do is more of an art than a science. You can get really nervous and almost kill the work if you over plan to facilitate these kind of conversations. If you go in there and say, hey, I don't know. I, I'll tell you, I don't know why I am in DEI work. I was the most racist, misogynistic, just person trying to survive in a world that took power and just, I was just angry, you know? And so now to be in a place of love and hope and smiling and this is like, all right, <laughs> like this is crazy, you know? And so I hundred I, percent I understand. It's just a perspective that I have. Like just on the optics, like you have a black man and a white woman running the show on social justice, that right there shows the audacity of what we're doing right now. Like we're 100% not supposed to be in this place pushing this work. And I am so appreciative and humbled by this opportunity. And so like, as we talk to all these individuals and form a bigger collective, um, like you talked about it on your um, TED Talk, collaboration and just diving in, you know, like that's all I do. I don't know what it is podcast, but I dove in. I don't even know if it was water in this pool. You know, I think I, I could have had a concussion or something. Like I jumped in head first into podcasting and now look where we are, you know, talking, talking individuals like yourself. And again, man, like everything, metaphor, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Like, so, so thank you. I, I did have a question like what, cause I know what makes me nervous, you know, what drives me, but what puts you in a place where it's like, Hey, I'm nervous, but I'm I, I'm about to go. I'm about to just go and do it. That's such a, a, a cool question because it brings together the the art side and the activist side. Because I, I don't know if I even talked about this, but I, I mentioned that when I was a younger age, got into art stuff and activism stuff at the same time. I also got into this like facilitation. It's like what people call today DEI, but like social justice education, political education stuff around that same time. And I feel like there's a nervousness being up on a stage as an artist. And there's also a nervousness when you're facilitating a group of, you know, 30 people who don't really want to be there and don't want to have that conversation about masculinity or about whiteness or whatever. And I think in, in both cases, the thing, well, this is actually, again, when I work with students, an activity we do is just a collaborative, like list making, of like what works for you, whether you're an athlete or a musician or a theater kid like how do you get over that because then like having all the different tools that different people use again we can like draw what works for us i think the thing that's been most useful for me is it's a little more because you know there's very practical things like breathing and like taking time to center yourself and all that but i think one thing that's been really useful to me both as an artist and as an activist in different ways has been the idea of cultivating both a little bit of humility and a little bit of arrogance at the same time. Because I think too much of one or the other, like if we're too humble, if we're if we're all like, oh, I don't matter, nothing matters. Like, why would we ever speak out about anything? You have to be you have to be arrogant enough to feel like you have something to contribute while also being like humble enough to to have a little bit of that, like, you know what, if people throw rocks at me, well, I mean, that's never happened on stage, but if people boo me or don't like me, like, it's not the end of the world, like the world keeps spinning. And I think having that little bit of arrogance and that little bit of humility and kind of mixing them, you know, in terms of like 
potions and like chemicals or whatever has really helped me again as someone who who's an introvert and who does not like public speaking but my job is to be a public speaker <laughs> um to to you know step up to a microphone and say like this space right here I'm going to do what I can with it in this time that we have together and then I don't have to do all the work in this moment. I don't have to tell the whole story in this moment. I have to contribute something. I'm called to contribute something and then it's up to us in a group in the, in the the room to make meaning of that, I think. And so again, it's a little abstract thing like but that's that's how I've kind of dealt with my own anxiety around doing the work. Yeah. I love that. That's so like I before I I get on stage, I often like say a little, I'm not big on prayer personally, but I, I say a little prayer and I just say like, may I say something today that sets off a light bulb for someone. And like, that's it. You know, I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know what I'm going to say, <laughs> but that intention feels really kind of similar to that. I'm like, I hope there's something in there. <laughs> I mean, since, since we're going around the room, I it's like, before we go out, I have to have these same headphones on probably listen to some either Nas or Biggie. Um, I get in my zone and I just like say, I don't know everything. I'm honest about not knowing everything. Let's just see what happens um, if they receive the message that I have to bring, you know? And um, being audacious with a message that the, yeah, you talked about the balance, not having too much arrogance. I definitely had to learn more of humility because as immigrants, I was raised to take up the room. You know, you may not be the biggest person, you know, but as a black man, you know, um, so much power is taken away from you, Courtney. You have to make sure that your presence is felt in every room, you know? And so this is a balance now as my as I get older to make sure that I balance the humility with the, hey, I, I got this, you know? And I think that's, I think that's leadership. You know, I think that's activism. Like you said it, if you don't believe in what you are doing, why would anyone else? If you go up there and you're too humble, like, hey, guys, I really don't know about DEI. I think you shouldn't be anti. I, I think you shouldn't be racist. But if you want to be racist, um, it's cool. to Like, it, it comes a time like, nah, cool. <laughs> nah, this is it. You know, so it has to be cutting dry in certain areas and like willing to show the, the, the humility in others. And so finding that balance in that sweet spot is the art of, of what we do, whether you're a poet, whether you're a facilitator, whether you're an artist, whether you're a doctor, whether you're in whatever facet of life, if you want to be great in it, you have to balance the audacity with the humility. And so you said that perfectly. So thank you for bringing it here. I would love to kind of hear, um, about your journey kind of coming to understand white supremacy and then starting to write about it. And then maybe if you're open to sharing something you've written about it, we'd love to hear a poem. Yeah. <laughs> so again, a, a lot of that was also through relationships. Um, I was in college around the time of the, the second Iraq war in like 2003, 2004. And so there was a, a ton of just like activism and, and movement work happening in that space. And even apart from the, the anti-war, like anti-imperialist stuff that was happening, I think within those meetings and within those movements, there was a ton of work around gender and like gender violence and race and racism and like who's taking up the most space in, in these spaces and who's driving the conversation. And so like that was my kind of entry point into doing some of that work. And again, building relationships with people who had been doing that work and who kind of could take me under their wing. And I think part of, of why I got into writing about it, and it's not like it's all that I write about, you know, I have a couple of poems that are very explicitly about kind of whiteness and white supremacy. I did release a whole album that was, that was around um, whiteness and, and race and racism and stuff. But I think part of it was very natural in that as artists, like we, again, I keep, I keep going back to this idea of like, when I work with students, one thing that we talk about is how do we challenge ourselves to see how like the identities that we hold and the audiences we have access to might impact the writing that we do. That writing isn't just something that happens in a vacuum of like this magical, mystical thing that is beautiful, but like it, it happens in context. 
right? Like if I'm going to write about race and racism because it's an important issue that affects people in my family and in my life and in my community, one, I can't tell other people's stories, right? I can only speak from my own experience. I think we get into a lot of dangerous waters when we try to tell other people's stories for them or like try to quote unquote, like be a voice for the voiceless or whatever. And so we always, you know, encourage students to, even, even if you feel like you don't have a ton of interesting story in, in your life around this issue, how can you draw something from it? How can you dig deeper and like zoom in even more? And so for me, it was, how can I write? Again, like I said, because most people experience, like my walking down the street identity, people see me as white. How do I write about whiteness in an interesting way, in a way that maybe hasn't been done as much anymore? And I think, you know, sometimes how we how we answer that question is about personal experience like just telling our own personal stories because no one else is going to have the exact same story sometimes it's about how do we come up with like a new concept or like a, a different approach or a hook these are very like you know poetry like creative writing questions right how do you how do you get a piece of information to jump out and like stick with people one of my favorite conversations is how the same tools that poets use to try to create work that sticks with people are the same kind of tools that activists and advocates and organizers can use to frame campaigns, to release like press releases and um, flyers for events. Like they're the same types of questions. How do you make it real? How do you make it interesting? How do you make it like sticky is the word I keep coming back to. And so a, a poem like, you know, how to explain white supremacy to a white supremacist, which is one of my more like, you know, I'm a poet, so I'm not super famous or anything. But if I have a more well-known poem, it's, that's one of them. It's not a super personal poem. I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about like my own personal story, although there are, you know, little bits and pieces of it in there. Um, a lot of it just came down to sitting with the topic and trying to come up with with some images or some framings that are not, again, better or worse than how other people are talking about it, but just something a little bit different um, in order to, again, not write the best poem about the topic, but to contribute something different and new. And I mean, that, like you said, um, if you want to hear something, that was a huge part of the new book. So like that poem I mentioned is from my older work. I wrote it, I don't know, in like 2013 or 2014 or something. The poem, the white, how to explain white supremacy yeah. to white supremacists. Yeah. Okay. And people can totally find yeah. it on the yeah. internet. So, but, um, <laughs> the book that's coming, I don't know when this podcast will air, but the book that, the official release date for the new book, it's called, How, uh, it's called Not A Lot Of Reasons To Sing But Enough, is um, March 29th. And the conceit of that book is that it, it doesn't take place on the earth. Like it's a, it's a sci-fi poetry book. And so the challenge was, you know, I still want to write about masculinity. I still want to write about whiteness and capitalism and like domination and all the like the same issues that affect us here in the real world. I wanted to write about those same issues, but do it from just a, a different, a very different angle. You know, it's a sci-fi book, takes place on another world. And again, not because that I think that's a better or worse way of doing it, just because it was a, a challenge. I thought it was a healthy challenge. And I think it's, well, it's it's cool. I'm an anthropologist as well. And I think it is a little bit easier for people to see what's going on by stepping on the outside. Like when we're in, in the water, as your poem says, like it's hard to see it. So I, I think it's a brilliant approach. So I'd love to hear some, some of that. Work. Yeah. My thought was if I wanted to share a poem during this little bit of time that we have, maybe I would share something that is not on the internet that no one else that you can't find anywhere else because it's from the book it's new and this is a poem that again because this takes place in another world where like there aren't really white people like there are people but it's not that they don't move through the same systems we move through so how do you how do you boil down this idea of, of white supremacy into something that is even more foundational about kind of domination and about control and about power and I think sometimes that, like you said, that kind of stepping away from the specific issue, well, there are risks in doing that, but I also think there are opportunities in maybe making connections. And that this is a poem, not to over-explain the poem or whatever, but this is a poem that I think most people will read as being about masculinity. But to me, how we talk about masculinity and how we talk about whiteness are very much intertwined, at least in the U.S. And so this is a poem called Wolves, They Said, Prayer-Like. It wasn't that the fence would cost too much or take too long to build, the men of the village just looked past us, past where the fence would be into the great forest itself. Wolves, they said, prayer-like. 
Night after night, packs of vicious wolves leave the cover of the great forest to raid the farms just outside the village, taking sheep and hogs, dozens of the beasts, stinking of blood so large they will look you straight in the eye. They come and they kill our sheep, our hogs, and they disappear back into that endless whispering hell. We offered to start building the fence immediately as this was still a relatively new settlement and our bosses figured they could curry favor with the people here by providing some basic protection. We knew right away though, as our proposal hung in the air around the bonfire, these men would politely but firmly decline. We'd seen it before, this hunger. These men, always men, Carrying their grandfather's swords, brittle from the rejection of their own softness. They didn't want to prevent the wolves from taking their livestock. They wanted to punish them. They would form hunting parties. They would sharpen spears and string bows, both useless in woods that dense. And these men would march straight into that darkness. The root of this kind of zealotry is always a story. Sometimes it's a story about how men are strong and strength always wins. Sometimes it's a story about how men are weak but can become strong through suffering. Sometimes it's a story about how terrifying it is to be alone, how important it is to go along. It's never a story anyone actually tells. It lives like a parasite in the margins of other stories, innocent stories of adventure and escapism of men, always men overcoming long odds, winning through sheer force of will and righteousness, men killing their enemies. The stories are tricks. The hardest man is softer than a dull blade, a shovel, a mouthful of teeth, rugged, becomes ragged so easily. Strong becomes inflexible. Tough becomes gristle. A single-minded enemy is easy to predict, to hunt. All those qualities men see as weapons. They're just weight. No use in the brush we move through. Too many men see wolf and think dog. Think weak, familiar creature that cowers to a raised voice. Too many men see ourselves and think wolf, taste the blood between our teeth and assume it once belonged to prey. So yeah, um, a lot of my work, again, if, if people explore my work online, a lot of it is a lot more straightforward, right? Like I write pretty explicitly about, about some of these issues. And again, this book was an opportunity to try to step back. And it, like we were saying before, in order to illuminate some of the connections between different issues, whether that is toxic masculinity or white supremacy or like authoritarianism or these different kind of currents and threads that exist in our world. And just, again, illuminate how those things are connected. I don't know if y'all have any things you noticed. Or, wow. Thank you yeah, so yeah. much. Thank you. Courtney, I'm curious what jumped out for you. I had a couple things that jumped out for me that I'd like to ask about. Ooh, man. Um, masculinity perceptions of strength um, and power, you know, um, stories. As a Black man, as an immigrant raised as such, so much power has been taken away, especially um, from my culture, that when you can hold on to one, you kind of overdo it. You push it too much. You, you, your relationship, and you have to overpower I am the man in this relationship. You're doing anything. I am the man by doing this. And so as you spoke about the masculinity and the wolf and the perceptions that I've seen, uh, I think it kind of, again, resonated because when you grow up in a community of wolves and, um, and this perception that this is powerful, this is weak, this is this, it's like... Your, your brain is hijacked as sometimes stolen from, uh, and you can't be individual. Individuality is not really accepted where we come from. It is, whether we want to admit it or not, it's like, this is what's it. If you don't do it, you're different, you're weird. Either you're going to be strong like this or you're weak. 
You know, and so that's why we have a problem with homosexuality. We have a problem with with men that respect um, women. We have a problem with education because sexuality, education, healthcare, all the systems that affect us today have the power has been taken away from people of color. And with that, so now we have to recreate this new ecosystem, this subculture of power to have some kind of semblance of our humanity. And so that's what it looks like, you know? And so it, a lot came off of me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could go on, man, but this is about you. So yes, a lot came off of me. Yeah, that's just the inside sliver. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The imagery, Courtney, you touched upon this, but the imagery, I think the, your line say, you said something about how important it is to go along and just the imagery of the wolf pack. There's just something... That I wish I could put my finger on it. It's um, <laughs> something about, um, gosh, I feel like I saw something recently that put it so well into words. How scary breaking away from powers of, of whiteness, of white supremacy can be, how powerful it can be, and how even especially the first like maybe six months of doing the podcast and really like putting my experiences out there, there was this fear. I had more fear of like white friends and family being like, what? Get back in line basically was the feeling, you know, like you've been following this, this path and now you're breaking away from it. And like, I could feel the violence of, of that and how like going along with how things are is, it's just a really compelling, I don't know, human instinct, stay in the tribe. I don't know. There's there's something that Courtney said about the idea of like being seen as weird. And then something you said, Emily, about about like get back in line, get back in line. And I think there's something really important about that in terms of I think about it like this. So um even stepping away from the conversation about about racism and white supremacy, when I do masculinity work, a lot of that work with young men isn't telling them how to be it's trying to just point out how the world is already telling them how to be it's because because there's this thing about what is seen as normal and what is seen as abnormal and how lopsided that is so much it's you know around whiteness stuff too i think sometimes the white participants in like discussions and workshops and stuff i don't think there's very rarely a like at least in my perception, a literal conscious, like, I want to hold on to power. I think most white people don't think like that. I think it's more of, I mean, yeah, I think it's more of like a, I, I just want to be normal. I just want to have a normal life. I don't want all this other stuff or have to like change my normalness when we don't see the, the violence of, of like normality. Um, and so like, again, I think poetry and art in general can be a great opportunity to, again, not tell people how to think or tell people what to do, but to illuminate and point out the ways in which the society is already telling us what to think and already telling us what to do and encouraging people to like, hey, maybe we should like think critically about that. Maybe we should try to break away from that, you know, when we can. But I just wanted to point out one other thing, just because this uh, connects to this conversation in the poem. Uh, there's a line around... Um, the, the men, the, you know, they don't want to prevent the wolves. They want to punish them. And I think that tension between prevention and punishment is a running theme throughout the whole book because it relates, again, directly to the idea of policing and prisons and like the prison industrial complex. And again, it was a way to tie in this idea of masculinity with this idea of white supremacy, with this idea of, of imprisoning and punishing people. And I think that those connections... Um, really like right now in 2022 or whenever people are listening to this like form a really important foundation for understanding how power flows in the u.s and how power functions um and again the sci-fi approach allows us to maybe look at that in a way that maybe we hadn't looked at it in the same way before i don't, I don't know i feel like in the way that you're speaking that you're talking about toxic masculinity and white supremacy as potentially two different things or thinking about two, like, can you help like tease out your, the way that you see those systems of power? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I wouldn't be the first person to say that everything's connected, right? Like that's almost a, plat a platitude, the idea that forms of oppression are connected, that forms of resistance are all intimately intertwined with each other. Um, I guess I think a lot in terms of like Venn diagrams and that in different situations for different people in different contexts, 
masculinity is going to look different and like function differently. And then in different people in different situations, in different contexts, like whiteness and white supremacy is going to look different and function differently. And they, and they overlap. I think a, a point that Courtney brought up earlier around how, well, again, to connect it back to my own work, doing work around masculinity, it's different for different audiences because of other identities that they hold, understand power differently and understand their own masculinity or their own like identities in that way differently than other audiences. And so I think it, it's important to be careful not to, oh, what's the word? Like, you know, just have like the one answer, like this is how we fight toxic masculinity. But instead it's about these little threads here and there of, again, tools that people can pull away from. And I think that relates to your question about how toxic masculinity and white supremacy are intertwined and in that they're both kind of systems and cultures of, of domination, of saying that you need to be dominant, you need to be powerful, you need to be in control. But those like commands function differently based on what identities we hold in terms of our own gender and race, racial identity and all the other identities that we hold. And so again, it's like, I feel like even what I'm saying right now is kind of all over the place in that it's it's complex. Like it's a it's so complex. It's a, a system, yeah. an, an ecosystem of different issues and different impulses and different threads kind of combining and uncombining, unraveling, unraveling together. Um, but I think that's part of the, the work, right? For those of us who do facilitation or social justice ed or DER, whatever you want to call it, is illuminating those connections when there are connections and also illuminating the complexities when there are complexities and gray areas and stuff. And is that the is that kind of what you were pointing to with the this idea of, of narrative strategy, like identifying your narrative, maybe what you've been fed, what you're hearing, and then exploring a counter narrative? Or could you say more about that concept? Yeah, I think about you know, going back to the the two big examples of, of toxic masculinity and white supremacy, how much of those are upheld by stories? You know, they're obviously up, also upheld by by systems and like very specific like policies that are in place and laws and stuff. But I think on a cultural level, how much stories kind of drive them, right? Like when I work with, you know, just to use the example of young men again, and we talk about some of these issues, I think sometimes people expect that I get a lot of resistance that people think I'm like full of it and they don't want to listen to me, but that's oft, often not the case. And I think some of that is maybe my own like privilege that I hold because of my identities. People listen to me, but I think part of it also is that a lot of, when we talk about masculinity, a lot of young men are ready to have this conversation. They just don't have a chance to have it. And I think with whiteness, it's maybe a little bit different <laughs> um, in that the story that is told about whiteness is not at the place culturally that the story that is told about masculinity is like just to see the the over the last 10 15 years how much that story has shifted is really incredible and i think you know generally a, a good thing that like young men today more or less often i mean every community is different and every identities we hold impacts this but i think in a big general sense have more of a sense that like it's okay to be yourself you know you don't have to look like a big action hero, super muscle, big dude to like be a man. And again, I don't want to generalize, but in the general sense, I think that story is changing. Whereas the story about whiteness is still very like often invisibilized. Like people just don't want to think about white or white people don't want to think about whiteness, don't want to talk about it. It's seen as just a default or normal in a way that I think masculinity, that story has shifted. And so part of the work is how do we then share and promote and encourage and cultivate counter narratives to the idea of whiteness being quote unquote normal or default or but like to, to just shine a light on it and say like this is a thing and we should talk about it and we should think critically about it and that you know that work is is hard but i think poets and and like screenwriters for like tv and movies and other types of writers novels plays i think there's a a a lot of force pushing in a, a, a healthier direction. And that intertwines then with people who are doing the facilitation work and like the, you know, the critical race theory work, honestly. But it's there's a long way to go too. I don't know. Wow. There's a long way to go. I don't know if I'm answering your, your question there. You are, yeah. no, totally, totally. What comes up for me, honestly, is the narrative on another end of that, masculinity is a narrative that is superimposed on men of color, especially black men. So we, like we said, the violence of normality, you said that. 
you know, which is which is poignant for me because when you're normal, sometimes what does normal look like for me? What did normal look like for me? I am now abnormal, you know, in my own community sometimes. And so when, yeah, we're ready to have this conversation, but are we free enough to have this conversation? Are we in a space where we won't be like ridiculed for having these kind of conversations? Because when you do, it's like, hey man, stop with all this white shit. You know, like, hey bro, we don't want, we don't got time to hear this. And that's, that's coming from trauma. You know, that's coming from a place of, I don't understand it. I think you're talking in, right in front of my face, but you're talking behind my back at the same time because I don't understand it. I, don't, I can't intellectualize it. That's not my reality. What my reality is, is this poverty that I'm living in right now, not how to be a, a non-toxic male. That's not like, I have to survive with this toxicity, so I have to be toxic. You know, like it, it's a weird reality, you know. So with someone like yourself or or me or Emily, we'll go into a community where I come from. It is like you have to go in there with a the relationship and not go in there with a pedagogy and say, hey, this is what it looks like. What? How do you know what it looks like? You ever been hungry? Is your mother or father in jail? Are, are one of the fa- your family member a sex worker? Like, what are we talking about right now? Before you unpack all this, like, I'm going to show you what normality is. And, and that's what I'm saying. It can get to a real sticky, violent place because now I feel threatened by your knowledge. And that is what, the, what happened during slavery. Like, they took our language and made it illegal to be knowledgeable. And so now, now we're sitting back with no knowledge of politics, of the systems, of mass incarceration. When we, we fill up jail for profit. And so now you're coming in talking about mass masculinity is toxic like this instead of, hey, what's your name, man? What's your story? Where do you come from? Why do you feel like that? Okay, cool. Now let me shape this. You So you're repackaging the educational, an educational piece and making it digestible for someone who has been force-fed bullshit for so long that that bullshit tastes good. It's like taking me, a meat eater, and now forcing me to become a vegan. Like, how are we going to do that, bro? You know, so, like, it's crazy. Like, you just brought it up. I just had to... No, I mean, that all makes perfect sense. And, it, like, it it relates, I think, very directly to... Talked about this a little bit earlier, but kind of the the opportunity that I think artists especially have, but not just artists, but, like, culture workers, people who are doing that relationship and culture work, the opportunity that we have to be kind of subversive, right? To go into a space and, like, look, I don't have no, like... TED Talk presentation, PowerPoint presentation for you, not like bullet point one, two, three, but really just telling stories and also listening to your stories as well. That idea of like dialogical spaces, right? Where it's not just one person who's at the front, but it's all of us telling our stories together. And I think that goes back to, you know, the hip hop notion of the cypher to the the idea of like the open mic and the, the poetry slam and like all these spaces that are built by many people sharing their stories. And you know, the idea that everyone has a story and every story matters and every story is valid, even when there are parts of that story that maybe we're not proud of, like by sharing our stories. And sometimes that's literal, like sharing our literal what happened to us stories. And sometimes it's more of a broader thing about our our values, our perspectives, but sharing that, that I think is where growth happens, where how, how we build community with each other. And it goes back to the idea that on an art level, on a poetry level, we often talk about how talking about about issues and concepts and ideas is almost never going to be as powerful as talking about images and stories and moments and memories. But I think even beyond that, like a poem that talks about an issue will do one thing. A poem that tells a story will do something else. But a poem that is performed by someone who you know and like have a relationship with is going to be even more powerful. And so like there's this spectrum of what is effective in terms of that type of messaging work. And that, again, directly connects to people who do not consider themselves poets or artists at all, but like people who are doing advocacy work and facilitation work and door-to-door like work or like 
union building work, like what, like all the different types of activist and organizing work that people are doing and how, how central relationships are to that and how central it is, like, like you said, to listen to people and not just talk at people. Yeah. I feel like relationships have really become a theme of what we talk, we've spoken about today is the important of forming those relationships. And it seems so important right now in this moment where there are a lot of people that want to get engaged in creating change and we're we're still physically distancing from each other, you know, like it, it puts such a strain on relationships. And, you know, when I work in professional spaces, I often, people are like, tell me how to give good feedback. Like how do, you know, what's the model for giving good feedback? Like build a trusting relationship, then someone will listen to you. <laughs> because if it's someone you don't know, then, you know, it's just gonna, whatever. It's just a whatever. So yeah, that importance of relationships in in this work is really speaking to me right now. This is really quick. There's maybe a, another connection here around just like broader kind of like the white supremacy culture stuff around people wanting really easy answers and really like li- linear A plus B equals C answers. What do I do? To questions like that <laughs> when relationship building is actually a really like messy, complex, nuanced process. And I think that's a thing that, you know, I think especially white folks, but then especially men too, like people who hold other types of privilege, like need to work, work at. (laughs) Again, I won't, again, not to throw that on other people, but that I have needed to work at because sometimes it is nice to have that very linear A plus B equals C black and white answer to a question. Sure. We're living in a complex time. It would be great if we could just like plug something in and do it right. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you spoke of, and really quickly, like how you make someone feel, if you got up there and facilitate, like that's so much more impactful than uh, oh, A plus B plus C. That's the thing. Like every every powerful person of, in history, whether you like them or not, made a sect, a certain um, portion of our population feel a certain way. Not they don't. They may not even remember what they actually said, but when they spoke, I felt good. I felt empowered. I felt motivated. And if you ask them, what did they actually say? I don't know. I just felt good. <laughs> you know, like something that's moved the, me. They, that's that's the reality. And so, if we can have a relationship and force a type of feeling in the activist work, yo, know, we can, you can move mountains. You know, um, so yeah, with that. Thank you so much for giving us so much to think about today. I mean, it's really, really beautiful to have this conversation with you and hear about um, your book. When, when is it getting released again? Um, the 29th of March? March 29th, yeah. Can people pre-order it on your website? Yeah. Um, and actually, okay. from what I know is that people who are who order it are just getting it. Like the publisher's just sending them out, even though it's not, it's not out <laughs> it's yet. Just... So there's a bunch of them already floating around in the world. I'm really excited about it. Awesome. We will put a link in the show notes. Um, Thank you. As we wrap up here, are you willing to share maybe one more poem that is jumping out at you right now? Something that comes (laughs) to mind? Oh, let me think. Let me think. It's different where like a year ago, you asked me that question. I know exactly what poem to do because my poems are very more, a little more straightforward in terms of how they deal with the issues. And then with the new book, because one, a lot of it's really new to me too. I have to think about that. Okay, based on the conversation we just had, what are some themes that jump out at me that could connect to some of the poems? And it's like- Feel free to take a moment. (laughs) And at some point, you're going to have to tell me how you memorize your poems too, because I'm so impressed. (laughs) Yeah, well, that, I mean, for for you or for, for listeners, like so much of what is often seen as kind of magical about performance is just repetition. So like- I think memorizing is just I read it 50 times out loud and then, and then it's memorized. But it's the same thing with like the emotional part of performance too. Um, just repetition, practice, rehearsal, like getting feedback from other people, like all that kind of stuff. Right. Wow. Yeah. Maybe maybe just a, a short one. This is, I, I actually have the book in front of me. This one's not memorized. Um, <laughs> it's a really short poem and I actually don't write a lot of short poems. I come from the, like a slam poetry background where poems tend to be around three minutes, maybe four minutes long. Um, and so it's been a challenge to me to write shorter things. But again, that's like a healthy challenge. Like for those of us who do any of this kind of work, like how do we boil down a big issue into something kind of smaller? And again, this is another poem that doesn't explicitly talk about masculinity or explicitly talk about whiteness or explicitly talk about capitalism or explicitly talk about any of those issues, but that hopefully draws them all together. And it's called City of Heart. It's from kind of the very end of the book. 
steal to eat, distribute banned critiques of the hoarders and exploiters via hand-copied leaflet, break a bully's face and laugh. It is so easy to do the right thing and find yourself on the wrong side of the law. Like the street we all know that separates the bad side of the city from the side they say you're not allowed on. Right or wrong is poetry. Legal or illegal is math. An equation with one answer, black or white, like so much of their little world. To them, you are either inside or outside the cage either citizen or non-citizen, male or female, I or not I. Streets run either north, south, or east, west. It's how they were built, how it's always been. Remember then, when you run, where you love this city, your pursuers will only ever love its map, the straight lines and borders, the twin nightsticks of x-axis and y-axis climb up a wall, disappear. And so a running theme in the book around kind of how artists and art can take meaningful part in the struggle to resist like authoritarianism, both as a political authoritarianism, but also as like a, a, a psychological thing. The idea of, you know, again, you have to be a certain way. You have to be normal. You always have to you know, follow the rules and all that kind of thing. And so trying to write stuff that, again, doesn't tell people what to think, but hopefully opens up space for us to maybe reframe certain ideas or step back and see the bigger picture. That idea of everything being this two-dimensional grid, what happens when you suddenly jump to a third dimension? Um, I mean, that's kind of like abstract sci-fi poetry stuff. But for me, in the way that like my personal brain works, that has helped me in my like advocacy work and in my activist work too, to always try to remember to take time to breathe and step back and search for those moments where maybe we can think in, in three dimensions rather than two or think outside of these binary concepts. Um, that's been really helpful to me. So I hope that poem makes sense. It's not quite as like, oh. no, you know. No, it's yeah. amazing. I love it. I love it. It was a perfect poem to share after our conversation. I, I mean... Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, no, thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. <laughs> awesome. And thank you all both for the work that you do. Oh, Kyle, yes. thank you, man. Seriously, sure. thank you so much. All right, everyone. Have a great day. We'll see you back here next time. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.